Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the resilience advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly Slow and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability, sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 6 beyond code. Going beyond the code and achieving resilience is the aspirational goal of the structural engineering community. There are always ways to improve the design to make it better. Better for the environment, better for the community, better in terms of resilience. Hmm, if structural engineers are striving for resilience, how can the code keep up with our standards, Evan? The good news, Audrey, is that developers of our codes are starting to recognize that resilience should be integrated into future codes and are moving in that direction. It's impossible not to take note of the advances being made in performance-based design. You should listen to the Resilience Advantage interview with Jessica Westermeyer. She gets into some of the details about that. Jessica Westermeyer. Hi, my name is Jessica. Is a structural project manager for KPFF Structural Engineers. So Jessica, I heard you worked on the Clifford L. LMB building. Tell me a little bit more about it. What are some of the specs for it? Yeah, so the Clifford L. LMB building is 11 stories with one story below grade. Um, it's a concrete building with PT flat plates, concrete columns, and concrete core walls. Um, and it's for the state of California. What is this building being used for? So it's for the Department of General Services, um, and that includes a lot of different people that would be involved in sort of disaster response, um, potentially even sending out, you know, checks or different things like that. While working on the design, taking into account that there will be essential workers working in this building, did you have to go beyond the code to make it operational after, let's say, an earthquake? Yeah, so I mean, I think they really want this building to be operational after an earthquake because a lot of that critical work um, that's going to need to happen immediately after a disaster is going to be housed in this building. So it was critical that this would be operational. What goes into a process like that? How did you and your team ensure the building's resilience in the event of a natural disaster? So in the the RFP or request for proposal at the beginning of this building, um, they included a number of requirements, first of all, that enhanced it beyond code. And then they also included a number number of optional enhancements. Um, And in this, when we were competing for the job, the design build entity could sort of pick which one of these enhancements that they wanted to provide the state. Um, And so then the state used that to kind of decide which team that they wanted to choose. Seems like there must have been many challenges when designing the building since there were so many enhancement requests. Could you run through some of the technicalities that were considered and changed? Some of these enhancements were 
um, all of the shear walls were designed for sort of a, a multiplier, a higher level of seismic force in the walls. Um, in addition, it was designed for a higher risk category. So all of the forces were increased by 25%. So it's designed for a bigger, stronger earthquake um, than a typical code-based building. Then in some of these optional enhancements, they included limiting the building drift to less than 1%. Was a resiliency study needed or required? Yeah, one of the options was a resiliency study. Um, and so this would really tell them about the behavior and the performance of the building after a seismic event hit. We realized that sort of all of these enhancements went hand in hand. So if we already have to design for a higher level of seismic force, we already were committing to limiting our drifts to less than 1%. We're already um, adding a multiplier to our seismic shears in our concrete walls. We're already doing all of these things to show that we're above code level. Uh, so that fit really well with resiliency and that sort of the USRC rating sort of gave us a tangible way to quantify all of the, these enhancements, which would probably have just been lost to the general public without this study. And I don't think anybody would have really understood, you know, the, why we were doing this um, in the future. Did these enhancements beyond the code increase the cost of the building? Is resiliency worth it? Because we were already committed to a lot of these enhancements, we actually didn't have to do any further enhancements to get this platinum rating. So this was all, there were actually no changes to the design whatsoever. Now, there were, there were some, some cost implications of the enhancements that we committed to, of those force multipliers, of the limited drifts, of the higher seismic design demand, but compared to sort of the total cost of the building, it's very, very small, right? You're talking about a 22-inch wall versus a 20-inch thick concrete wall, right? And so it, it's really very, very nominal in the grand scheme of things. So going beyond the code doesn't really increase the cost of the building. Did the enhancements to the building cause any delay to the construction? Yeah, I don't think that this had any impact on the schedule at all. Um, that is one of the benefits of, of a design build team, right? As you're able to sort of weigh the costs better with the contractor, you're able to get real-time input on, on what changes, how they would impact the construction schedule. And so we really didn't see any impact whatsoever. So the cost is just about the same and the construction time was not delayed. Why don't more people consider resiliency? Did the building perform well in an earthquake? Yeah, so what we found um, was that it performed very well in a large earthquake. So we were able to get five stars in all three categories of damage, casualty, and sort of time to recovery. And what we were seeing is the primary um, damage occurred at cracking in the slab to column joints, uh, as well as some cracking of of drywall head joints, uh, so very, very minimal damage, right? And so this is, this damage is mostly aesthetic. Um, you could reoccupy even with this damage and then you could go through it and fix this damage as people are actively doing their jobs. And that's the key element of what resiliency is all about. 
being able to restore the function of the building after a natural disaster with little to no disturbance for the people living or working in it. One thing that really helped the performance of this building is one, there was a, a large percentage of the building was glazed in curtain wall. Um, so that performs very well in a seismic event. Uh, another thing is we didn't have the sort of T-bar drop ceiling. So a lot of times after seismic events, you see, right, that damage isn't necessarily structural damage, but it's all these ceiling tiles that have fallen on desks and computers. Um, and we actually have a raised access floor. So it, it, it removed a lot of that drop ceiling from the building, which I think helps the, the long-term performance in a post-hazard event. What is your personal stance on resiliency? I think, again, the, the, the industry as a whole, right, is, is moving to looking at, at buildings in a more holistic sense, right? Whether it's carbon impacts, whether it's, you know, life of the building. Pause? A holistic sense? This is similar to how colleges are looking at a student applicant in a holistic sense as well. They're looking for a student that touches bases for academics as well as a balance with extracurriculars and sports. When looking at a building holistically, what are the things that you're hoping to see? I think, one, it's a really valuable tool for education um, for building owners. Right? I think your typical building owner maybe doesn't understand that a code-level building is designed for life safety in an earthquake. They don't understand that it's not that the, the point of a, a code-level building is not to survive the earthquake and then be used afterwards. Um, so I think that's a really valuable education tool. Um, I think it, we can provide our, our owners a service so that when they do want to invest in a higher level of performance, we're providing them a way that they can show their future tenants or they can show building occupants that they have invested in that. Um, it's very tangible. And I think as structural engineers, right, um, there's real value in understanding the actual performance of a building. This seems like looking at a building in a holistic sense requires the engineer to go beyond the code. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's, I think one, in general, the cool thing about engineering, right, is, is you're creating something tangible that you can point at and say, you know, I was a part of this. Um, and then to be a part of something, right, that's going to serve a community, that's going to affect so many different people's life is amazing. And then on top of that, to be able to be a part of a building that is going to not only serve them day to day, but is going to be functional after this dramatic event, after this seismic event that's going to affect, you know, thousands of people in the area. Like, that's even a cooler thing, right? Um, my small part, you know, indirectly is going to help thousands of people, which is just, you know, that's something that you, you wake up every day and you get excited about. This is gold. I can definitely see this. We do not realize how much we impact the lives of the community when in reality we touch more lives than we can imagine. So Jessica, do you think USRC's rating system is useful in the eyes of a structural engineer? Absolutely, yeah. This, I mean, this was the first time the state of California ever received, I believe any USRC rating, but definitely the first time it received a platinum USRC rating. Um, so they were 
ecstatic about it. I think they were very pleased with the design team, the design build team as a whole, um, how they sort of came together and made this possible. Because it really did, the collaboration started at the beginning of the project and and required full team buy-in. But yeah, overall, I believe the state is, is very excited about the project as a whole and very excited about the USRC Platinum. I don't know if they understood that they could even receive the Platinum rating. Um, so this was kind of the first time they dipped their toe into that. And yeah, we're pleased with the results at the end. That is so cool to be involved in the project that received the first Platinum USRC rating in California. I could imagine this paved the way for many others in the resilience movement. I'm curious, when my fellow Archie friends and I walk around downtown slow, we always tend to point out the building structures and see the building as if it was modeled on Revit. Is this how you look at buildings as well? When I look at a building, when I'm walking down the street, you know, I think the obvious things do pop out, like, is this aesthetically pleasing, uh, different things like that. But then I kind of start to take a closer look. Um, my husband always makes fun of me because the first thing I do when I walk into a building is I look up. Um, I look, you know, are there beams? Is it concrete? What's the soffit look like? You know, are there concrete columns? Um, and another thing I, I kind of try to look for is is the lateral system, right? What is the the lateral force resisting system or the, the earthquake resisting system? Are there braces? Are there concrete shear walls? Uh, uh, different things. So you kind of start to think about all the pieces that go together that make a building. Um, maybe things that, you know, the general public would just kind of gloss over, or ignore. Like I get really excited about really nice looking concrete um, because I know the effort that went into it. I'm starting to enter this work field, starting to enter the structural engineering work field. So Jessica, you've been working for KPFF for a while. I would love to hear more about KPFF and your company culture. Sure. Yeah. So KPFF, um, we're a pretty large company situated mostly on the West Coast. So we've got, you know, offices in LA and San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, um, and a number of other offices. Um and so we work on a variety of projects. We like to kind of say like no project is too big or too small. Um, and I've loved that variety. So that's kind of one of the things that drew me to KPFF is um, we do work with great clients like the state of California. Um, we do work with awesome architects like ZGF who did this building. Um, and then just company culture. Uh, I think KPFF really cares about our employees. Um, we put us in, in positions to succeed. Um, we get a lot of experience in a lot of different projects, so we don't get pigeonholed. So I have a lot of friends that started at other firms and they designed grade beams for three years before they got to do touch anything. Um, and I think in my first five years, I worked on pretty much every major structural system. The flexibility to partake in different projects seems like a good environment to grow in. Yeah, so I've just had a lot of opportunity to work on really cool projects that are benefiting our community with really great clients who are excited about doing things the right way. How about the engineering community? Is it as tight-knit as the structural engineering community is? Yeah, so I do think the engineering community um, it's kind of small. You end up bumping into the same people over and over again. Um, and so 
there is a lot of sort of information sharing. And so we try to, I think as an engineer, one of the things that attracted us to this field is we want to be continually educating ourselves, continually learning. Um, and so we do this through, you know, involvement in organizations, like in our case, SEAW or SEONC, which is the Structural Engineering Association of Northern California. Um, we do this through going to presentations. Um, a lot of times there's webinars now. Uh, KPFF has actually been involved in USRC from the beginning, um, and we have a couple certified raters in our office. And so they, they've sort of gotten educated through being involved in USRC. As a structural engineer, you can control the usage of material being used on the building and then adjust it to accommodate for the loads and requirements. This may take a toll on our environment with the usage of materials. Is there a way to measure or rate if the building is sustainable and environmentally friendly? Absolutely, yeah. So we actually did a full life cycle analysis on this building. Um, and we know that sort of concrete was the biggest contributor to global warming potential. Concrete is the biggest contributor in the building to global warming? I am shocked. We think about the energy production needed for air conditioning or heating or fossil fuels and coal-powered electricity, but concrete? I did not know that. We knew that if we made small changes to our concrete, um, that could result in add up to really big changes in our global warming impact. And so what we did was kind of a two-pronged approach. One, we used a post-tension concrete slab. Um, so that allowed us to slim up our structure um, and use a smaller volume of, of concrete, not only in our slabs, but it actually allowed us to reduce our story height, which reduced the quantity of glazing around the building. And the second way we did that is we tried to use more sustainable concrete. Um, and so the way we did that is we actually required EPDs, and EPDs are an environmental product declaration tag. An environmental product declaration tag? What's that? This is kind of like a nutrition label for concrete. How does this help with making more sustainable decisions within the field of structural engineering? It's basically a mini life cycle analysis for each mix on the project and says how good or bad it is. And so because this was a design build project, um, we were actually able to bring on a supplier who didn't have any EPDs. Um, we worked with the supplier to sort of come up with new mixes, and then they got these mixes certified with EPDs that were then able to be used in the LCA. By the way, in case you didn't catch that, an EPD is an Environmental Product Declaration Report. It's a standardized document informing about the product's potential environmental and human health impact. That EPD is produced on the basis of LCA, Life Cycle Assessment Calculations. It provides a measurable basis for comparing products, structures, and services. And so what they do with these EPDs is they compare the concrete mixes specifically for our project to a sort of an average, a regional average. Um, and we were able to show that we were somewhere in the 10 to 20% better range. Um, so we were actually able to reduce the amount of cement significantly for our building. And so this was one of the first projects in the Sacramento area that used EPDs the first time this supplier ever had any EPDs as a direct result of this project. 
Um, and now they're able to use those on a bunch of other projects in the Sacramento area. And it's putting pressure on all of their competitors also to get these EPDs. So this project has sort of driven the concrete industry forward um, to have more availability of these greener, more sustainable mixes. Evan, this is exciting. Jessica walked me through the process of making a building more resilient. It seems like the cost is nominal and the construction schedule isn't majorly affected. Choosing resilience should be an easy choice for the community then, right? That's right. Architects and engineers are showing that it's not only possible to achieve resilience without having a negative impact on the project, but that in many cases the benefits far outweigh the costs. And those benefits include creating a more environmentally sustainable building too. Cool, so who's going to be our next interview? Audrey, it's great to look at resilience from the science and engineering perspective, but it's just as important to understand the real-life impacts that resilience, or the lack of it, have on our communities. Daniel Zapata is an engineer who has visited the aftermath of many devastating earthquakes. I love his insights into the personal effects earthquakes have on people and what he and others are doing to improve the lives of our vulnerable populations. Great, looking forward to it. For more resources and information about Jessica Westermeyer and the Clifford L. Ellenb Building, or for links for the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into the Resilience Advantage interview with Daniel Zepeda, a principal at Degen Kolb Engineers in Los Angeles who specializes in seismic engineering for existing buildings. His experience as part of Degen Kolb's post-earthquake reconnaissance team has given him the direct insight into what works and what definitely doesn't work when designing for resilience. <laughs> <laughs>